Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Dan Maurice, an explorer and storyteller. Dan Maurice, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you. It's great to have you. I read Finding the Peacemakers, and I have to say, um, one of the most gripping, mm. um, engaging uh, books that I've read in a long time. Um, some great stories. You are, Dan, a storyteller. That's Have right. you always known that you're a, you could tell stories? Well, I think the first thing I noticed is that stories grip me. And so uh, when you hear people sort of teaching or giving you advice or information, that's helpful to an extent. But when you get lost in a really good narrative, I find it inspires you. You know, if you see someone that's done something amazing, you see lives well lived, you think, oh, I, you know, I want something. I want what they've got. And so I think a story's always gripped me. And I love telling, I love teaching through stories. It just kind of became, and I'm also just curious. You know, I kind of want to know what does it look like to be a peacemaker in this sort of environment? So I think curiosity has been my, um, probably my fuel on this adventure. <laughs> and so that's why, and obviously when people ask you about a trip or something, it's the stories of a way you tell it. You don't come back and say, here's five things I've learned you say, oh, let me tell you about this person. Well, one of the stories, Dan, that you tell in the book is the story about the uh, the miners yeah. uh, in Chile. Yeah. Now, first of all, it was a big story, but yeah. what prompted you to go to Chile yeah. to retell the story? I thought there was something that we in the West weren't quite getting, the full picture. And so I think when the story broke, I was actually in London. I was, I'm from Bristol originally, but um, I was visiting London. I was on the Tube, which is not known as an environment of like sheer euphoria. No. <laughs> it was just the morning commute and normally people are a bit sleepy. But it was just a real sense of joy in the atmosphere. And it was the day when the miners were set free. It was all in the papers. You know, there was miners with tears cutting through their cheeks, hugging the president, kissing their wives, high-fiving the drilling queue. It was just, it was, just, it was such a warm and... Like you could sense in the atmosphere, even in the underground, people were just rejoicing. There was a, this is a good news story. And it just sort of lifted the atmosphere a little bit. And so I read, like everyone, I read into the story. I wanted to know what was really going on. And I think the papers sort of hinted at something within this story that was, there was more to it than meets the eye. And so, um, in fact, the, the Times called it the miracle of San Jose. Yes. And there were certain events that happened within the mine during that 69-day ordeal that really were quite remarkable. Um, water that miraculously became clean, a breeze that swept out of nowhere and restored this guy's breathing in, in his last moments and things like that. But because the secular press, understandably, is not used to this, don't quite know what to do. So they weren't, they weren't sort of covering it up, but just didn't know what to do. You know, like, how do you, what, how do you describe yeah, someone who drops to their knees? They didn't know how to explain it. Exactly. Yeah, they didn't have a, an so understanding thought, of maybe the supernatural. Exactly. So I just thought, I feel like, the world needs to know the true story. <laughs> you know, I want to know the true story. But then, so you reached out to one of the miners. Yeah. I mean, that was, but you managed to find a connection somewhere. Oh, that was God's providence, 100%. Yes. So I wrote to his publisher in the States and said, could you forward this letter on to Jose? He was one of the senior miners, so yeah. because he'd been mining for many years. Yeah, he was one of the older ones, yeah. Yeah, and he was used to rock falls and all exactly. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, uh, so he had quite an influence over all the other miners. He really did, yeah. And I think sort of like a father figure, like you say, because he'd endured real challenges before, but he really kept his faith in it. So he wasn't just someone who had had experience. He was someone who knew that God's protected us before. And he's kind of walked that road of praying daily, of having real faith. And he had that real trust, that real peace. 
And so when the mine first collapsed, and he just said, look, this is an opportunity to trust God, to look after one another. He had a real, um, just a really good Christ-like sort of attitude. And the others in that panic kind of said, we, <laughs> can you help us out here? Like, you seem to have something that we don't have. And so he became a sort of, um, just, you know, like a real sort of role model to him, really, like a sort of big brother that looked after him, looked after them. And there are others as well, but Jose, they just noticed something spiritual about him. So he started leading prayers. He sort of would make them forgive each other when there was a little bit of fraction. And he became, and they called him the pastor. He wasn't a pastor, but he became that sort of pastoral figure and he really held them together. And a lot of them later, when I interviewed, said, Jose kept us together. Amazing. Yeah. Now, t- so obviously you need water, mm. you need food. Yeah. Um, there wasn't much food stored in no. the emergency store no. cupboard, was there? There wasn't, no. And wh- how much, what did they eat every day? They had three days emergency rations and that kept them going 17 days. And the thing that was really tricky to begin with is the miners who arrived in the refuge early. That's the sort of designated safe space. Some had you know, helped themselves to a bit of the emergency rations. So, of course, in the later days, a couple of weeks later, when they're down to half a teaspoonful of tuna a day per man, you think you could be looking at your brother thinking, well, you had that cookie two weeks ago. We could be having that now. <laughs> so the potential for conflict in when, you know, when you're starving was so high and that's what I loved about the story is that those sort of little moments of bitterness were just forgiven. Yes. And they were like, look, so, we're going to... Yeah, so instead of conflict, Dan, yeah. there was confession. Yes, very good. Which is interesting, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. Confession and compassion. And compassion. Yeah, yeah. very now, good. Now, what about water then? Uh, tell us about those two tanks. Yeah, amazing. So um, they had water in industrial tanks for cooling the machines. But of course, they were laced with chemicals. They were obviously polluted. No one wanted to drink them. But Jose said, well, we'll just pray for them. So he prayed a blessing over this tank. I mean, they're, they're gonna, if they're going to die first anyway, they thought we might as well have a go. And they drank the water. They were completely fine. And then later on, when they tested the water quality in that tank, it was completely clean. But the other tank, the tank that Jose didn't pray for, was contaminated. <laughs> and so at that moment, they thought, oh, wow, something's going on here. And there was those little stories, those little moments where, like I say, you can't explain that. And it could no. be coincidence. But actually, when those coincidences keep adding up, yeah, you have to wonder. And then there are other little uh, little stories within the story. Mm. You know how the president yeah. uh, of Chile uh, went to visit his father-in-law who That's was right. dying yeah. uh, quite late in the night. Yeah. And w- what did his father-in-law tell him? Well, this is remarkable, J. John, because when you're in the depths of a mine, of course you're praying. But the president didn't need to have, you know... He could have quite easily left this. Because it was a private mine. Exactly. Yes. Um, And he, he, first of all, he said he had a real conviction that they were alive. And then obviously after two weeks, his advisors are saying, come on, you've got to give this up. And you're right, absolutely right. He went to see his father-in-law, who was very sick. And his father-in-law said, look, they're alive. You've got to keep looking for them. And the father-in-law was in his deathbed. So the president, Pinera, spoke to his wife in the morning and said, this unusual conversation with your dad last night and his wife said this means something so he got on a plane and went up to the mine that day and that was the day they found them yes and the president walked up just as they brought up that note from the mine the note to saying say all well the 33 i mean the timing was sublime it's incredible yeah and that president was very honest about his i mean you've got to remember he's a political figure and there's there's a christian sort of sympathy but it's unusual for a leader to be given the glory to god you know Absolutely. he could taken some kudos for himself sure. deservedly so because yes. he was pursuing them but he was very honest about the fact there was something in this story beyond him beyond the government beyond the drilling teams who were all amazing 
but actually there was something in the story that was that was someone was kind of choreographing it, shall we say? Yes. And he was happy to admit that. Yeah. And and celebrate it. Uh, and then. Um, uh, as they were getting the prisoners out, yeah. um, they sent down T-shirts. Yeah. And what was it? Can you remember what was on the front and the back? They had Psalm 95. I can't remember the quote. Something yeah. like, in the, in the depths of the earth, um, your, the mountains are in your hands and in the depths of the earth. But something like that. Yes. You can check it out, Psalm 95. Uh, and it just had Jesus written on the sleeve. So on they the front, all coming said, out. It was, gracias, Senor. Thank yes. you, Lord. Just written on the front. Because they wanted to say that this is the message we're taking from the mind. Thank you, Lord. Gracias, Señor. Yes. And so, and Jose said this to me. He said, we don't want this story to sort of be hijacked and become just another story of they were very lucky or the drilling teams were very good. That's all true. He says, the real glory goes to God. And he was really passionate to say that, Jose. He said, the hero of his story yes. is Jesus Christ, not so, man. Oh, so having met the miners in person yeah. and heard the story in person, um, what impact did that have on you? I would say um, I was inspired by their sort of the calmness and the peace and the trust, um, particularly from Jose, because actually the chances of them surviving were very, very slim. And actually every day they were in the mine, the mountain was sort of grumbling around them. It yeah. could have collapsed at any second and they're all being crushed. That's an incredibly high pressure environment to be in. Besides the fact they're running out of food and water, you know, it was so stressful. And despite that, he, the, the only thing that held him together was this faith. He wasn't, you know, his circumstances were terrible, but he was like, I know God's going to rescue us. And so the thing, that, the thing that inspired me was that there was a level of peace that you can have in your relationship with God, which is completely outside of circumstances. Actually, there's a deep place of connection, which, and you can change the atmosphere around you with that. And Jose really brought real peace to the mind. And I thought, well, if that's possible there, in this traumatic situation, it's possible anywhere. Absolutely. Wow. Okay, you then go on, you then go on, you tell that story, mm. and then you go on and, and um, on another journey right. and tell another story. Um, a, a walk yeah. from Egypt yeah. to Nazareth. Okay, where, when did that come to you? <laughs> yeah. Did you wake up one morning and think, I'm going to walk 500 miles through the desert? Well, it's almost like that. So I'd say, well, first of all, like my background is I grew up in a very secular world. My friends are mostly atheists and I have a real sympathy for the secular world. And when people ask me difficult questions as a Christian, I often think, good question. I don't know, <laughs> you know, and particularly when we talked about the media, I think if you've got no Christian friends or any sort of any exposure to the gospel, you've never been on Alpha course, all you know is from kind of what you pick up from the papers. I think, why would you believe? And I think, I really want to show people what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus sure. through these testimonies. But I also want to sort of invite people into Jesus' life. And I know from past experience, when you try it, some people, when you start to talk about faith, they just think, oh, I don't know, this is awkward, particularly the British. And I thought, well, if I walk, his, if I walk Jesus' actual journey, you know, as a refugee child in exile in Egypt, probably one of his first memories would have been his journey home all the way from Egypt up to Nazareth. And actually, when I can invite people into his life, not a sort of set of religious teachings, but his journey through the desert, you know, dodging walls, trying to get water, trying to survive as a refugee, like any refugee in this generation on a big journey. Jesus knew that world. And I wanted to sort of step into that and in doing so, explore his life and sort of invite people into those first vulnerable years. 500 miles, yeah. how many days did it take you to walk it? It took about three months, but I did stop off and I stayed with some people on the way in Jerusalem and yes. Bethlehem and different desert towns. Right. So I didn't walk every day. No, so 
three months yeah. you had some companions for some of the journey yeah. but then there were days you were on your own yeah were you not um concerned i was yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were, you, were you not fearful very fearful and that's that's when the rubber hits the road i mean having faith when you're surrounded by people supporting you is easy enough it's not easy enough i still struggle then <laughs> but actually it was a day when pete let's i had a friend called pete who joined me on the first sort of frontier brilliant guy really helpful and then he had to go back because he had to go back to work. And that first night alone in the wilderness. So, thought, so, so you're in, in the desert yeah. and he has, he's got to go back to work. So how does he go on a detour? So he, there's a road kind of running up, but we were leaving the road and going up into the mountains. So literally he went one way, back yeah. down to civilization and got the bus up. And I went the other way up into the mountains away from civilization. On your own? Yeah, on my own. Um, and I, had, I remember saying to God beforehand, I'm praying about this and I'm like, I'll do this for you and for this story but I'm not doing it by myself yes and uh, <laughs> you know what sometimes you tell God what he's going to do and he's like I think you'll find I'm God <laughs> and uh, you know and, and as it was I was by myself but you know what I feel like there was something important in making part of a journey alone I, I wouldn't change it for the world because for, for two reasons one actually the first night I spent alone in the wilderness that was the day when the Prime Minister was holding us reception in Downing Street to tackle the loneliness epidemic in the West and I thought, well, that is good timing. Now, I'm experiencing loneliness, but actually, yeah. for me being alone in the, de- in the desert for a couple of weeks, that is almost like a sort of living metaphor of what it's like for millions of people, particularly during the last year we've had isolating, quarantine, living alone. And I started to explore what is, you know, what is the cure to this sort of loneliness epidemic? And I found two things. One, I found communities, partly the community I left behind in Bristol, but I, I realised in that time how much I loved them, <laughs> you know, when you're alone. But also I found communities in the desert who would take me in, Jewish communities, and later on the West Bank, Palestinian communities, Christians, Jews, Muslims, old, young, all sorts of different people from different walks of life who just took me in. That sort of Middle Eastern hospitality and treated me like a brother and rescued me and gave me some food. So, so when they found you in the middle of the desert, were yeah. they like, who are you? Yeah, quite. Where have you come from? And there is, there is a sort of trail that um, some hikers walk. So it's kind of known, but I was doing it out of season. And it's not, I mean, it's a danger, the desert's dangerous. And so not many people travel alone. And I was a Christian, so they don't meet many Christians. I, you know, I was just interesting to people yes. <laughs> in January. No one's around. And, and, and so, how did you communicate? So actually, you can text ahead to people on this forum and say, I'm coming into your village. And Israel's incredible. It's, in the desert, it's very hard to get water. You're completely on your own, surrounded by wild animals. But you can still text. And so <laughs> it's a very unusual world where actually it physically it's very hostile. But it's amazing. You can get a signal. I mean, that's the 21st century. It is. But still, even then, you can't guarantee. There was one time I was in the valley. I'd lost signal. I was on my own. And that's when you have to pray because whatever mod cons you've got, sometimes they fail. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say is I had communities that looked after me. I'm very grateful for trail angels, they call yeah, them. Yeah, so they welcomed you. Oh, amazing. Fed you. Yeah, exactly how it would have been for Jesus. And, and, Jesus- you, and you sat around the fire. Exactly, and- yeah. And Jesus' stories are filled with those sort of... St- Tales of hospitality. And so I experienced that. I was, I was the stranger that turned up in the middle of the night and they looked after. But I'd also say I experienced something in my own relationship with God, which was something that I think human contact can't, can't quite fulfill. We need community, we need each other. But there was a place, I think Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And there was one particular day, I mentioned I was in that valley, um, the valley of a shadow of death, literally, <laughs> like David wrote in Psalm 23. And uh, I, I lost my phone signal, I was off the map, I was taking a shortcut, which had gone terribly wrong, like most of my shortcuts as a geography teacher. And um, I reached this sort of polished slab of rock at the end of this ravine. 
it's the sort of epicenter of a previous flash flood. And I thought I'm gonna have to climb up this. And um, I was running low on water. I knew there was walls behind me. <laughs> I had to get to the top. Lots of things started to converge. I'm like, I'm in a bit of trouble here. Um, and this is when things go wrong in the desert. There's desert rescuers further north who said, look, people get lost, they fall down. And the sort of margins of um, survival in the desert are very slim. If something goes wrong, that's it, you know. So I started to pray, okay, God, I've, I've got nothing. I've got no one to call. I've got no one around me. I really need you. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not that experienced in the prophetic. You know, I'm not like a great, I'm not like John the Baptist. But actually, when you need to, God turns up. Yes. I was about to climb the slab and I felt so strongly this conviction turn back. I just couldn't do it. My legs felt like cement. It felt like I was being disobedient. And when I turned back, I felt like God just saying, well done. And I started to sort of pray my way down this valley, like left, right. And I felt like God leading me to the left. And this is totally new to me. I'm, like I say, I'm not a prophet, but I needed, to, I needed God. And I said, look, help. And I felt I followed his leading left, right, left, right. And he led me to this little path. And it kind of looped up the valley across this slab. And then there was a path going up the ridge. You know, if I hadn't taken that, I might not be here now. So I think there's a, partly as a, it taught me as a place of connection where you cry out to God when you really need Absolutely. him. And there's a, there's a part of your soul that God wants to meet you in, that nothing else, no human contact, no gadgets, no, no sort of mod cons. There's a place in our soul which is built for God. And I, I yeah. found him in that place. Just like David said in the Valley Absolutely. of the Shadow of Death, you are with me. And that's enough. And God definitely guides our steps and he guides our stops exactly and it's very always good. like he stopped you didn't he yeah and redirected your steps yeah very that good. was a very moving yeah what i was so intrigued about with your book dad um finding the peacemakers is that yeah you tell the story about the miners in, in chile you mm. you then walk through the desert 500 miles yeah. and then you end with you tell another story which seems completely random, completely random. But actually, when you put the three stories together, what mm. is so brilliant about them is that you're, it's three angles. Yeah. You're looking at three different things that actually there are so many connected principles with yeah. all three. But you tell the story of a football Hooligan. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, first of all, right, when you're thinking, okay, I'm going to put together Finding the Peacemakers, you know, um, Chili sounds amazing, yeah. the desert sounds amazing. Oh, I'll slip in a story about a football hooligan. Yeah. How did your brain work that one out? Well, to be honest, I don't want to take the credit for it because partly I feel like the doors that got opened almost felt like he was writing the script. And he was kind of leading me like this one next, then this one. And I was sort of following along and I had some ideas that didn't work. And I just felt like there was a golden thread from running through them of exactly, as you say, of peacemaking. And actually, as much as the Chile miners were amazing, and that's the sort of wow factor story. And the other stories that I met all sorts of different people, Syrian refugees and some amazing, powerful sort of miracle stories. But I did think, actually, it can be quite easy when stories are a long way away geographically. You can think, well, that's out there. How does it affect me? And I really wanted to capture something in my own hometown, in Bristol, in Western culture. And actually, I knew Dave. Um, he came to do a talk when I was a teacher. Um, he was a chaplain to Bristol Rovers at the time. And I thought at the time, this guy's amazing. Partly because knowing his backstory, and he was a wild child, and he was a football hooligan, and he wasn't very nice by yeah. his own admission. And when you meet him today, he is the most 
I'd say bravely loving. He's not just kind of like a tender sort of person. He hasn't yeah. lost his grit, but his grit is now loving. So he will fight yeah. for people rather so than against like them. he's like a cuddly teddy bear. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but he was a serious hooligan. Yeah. I mean, he got arrested yeah. for beating up opposition fans, 100%, didn't he? 100%, yeah. And so, I wanted to tell that story because I think peacemaking isn't just something that happens in war zones. Like We all need peacemaking. We all have conflicts. We all have fractions of people in ourselves and with other people. And actually, even I mean, we're not all football hooligans, but we all have little, little moments of fraction. And I feel like he could show us what it looks like to reach out, not just to those around you who are a bit different to you, but your actual enemies. Yes. And he reached out to a guy in a rival gang. And it's quite a funny story. He had left, he had found faith and left that whole world behind him. But he was in hospital um, visiting family and he saw this other guy, a guy called Divi, Mark Divi Saunders, on the bed opposite. And uh, Divi was with the... Uh, Bristol City guys and Dave was Bristol Rovers. It's the same in any town. You're red or blue, right? You're north or south. <laughs> and he was the rival team. And um, and Divi sort of clocked him and he looked at him and they kind of had that, you're right, mate. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they thought, knew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dave yeah. thought, just don't go there. But he's a, he's a vicar now. And so, you know, before he'd gone over with a fist, now he's like, I'm going to go over there and pray for him. And he went over and kind of said, you're right, mate. And Divi's kind of working out. But he's obviously lying in bed. He's in hospital. He's had a tumour removed, so he can't, they can't fight. And Dave, they start chatting, and Divi's probably going to work out, what's, what's this guy doing? And Dave said, um, I'm a vicar now. And Divi lost it. He's like, what? you are a vicar. You've got to be kidding. So Dave shared his story a bit about how he came to faith. He shared this moment when he'd gone to church to, I mean, he didn't like church. He went because he'd gone with a girl who had sort of bribed him to come to church and go for a drink afterwards. He'd really experienced the power of God in that church. Someone prayed for him and he just knocked him out. And he just left a life of violence in one moment. And if it wasn't for the story of Paul, you know, Paul of Tarsus yes. on the road to Damascus, knocked down and a lifetime of persecution in the church became a lifetime of being a preacher. Like Dave had exactly that experience. It was a real Damascus road experience. And so he said to Divi, I can pray that for you. And Divi was like, well... Nothing to lose. This guy that used to knock me out is now <laughs> offering to pray for me. He prayed for Divi and Divi said exactly the same. This warm, he said it was like electricity flowing from my body. Just warmth, the love of God just entered his body. And just like that, they became friends, arch rivals. And then he ended up baptizing Divi. When Divi later died, Dave did his funeral. And there was these rovers and city guys in church meeting because these two, that's like a, a genuine good Samaritan story. These two arch rivals, now friends, met who had prayed for one another. Yes. Like that's the kind of stories that are happening in our cities. Yes. It's not just in war zones and other places. No. There is peacemaking and there's love and there's countercultural stuff, you know. That's happening right here and now. And I wanted people to see it and almost to say, well, what could I do in my city? Who could I go and meet on the other side of the street? Absolutely. And what's so amazing, you've got, you got this uh, man who is a serious hooligan mm. who is banned yeah. by the football club. Yeah who then becomes the chaplain yeah, exactly. to the football club. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that in itself. And he said that. So he, they invited him back in and he said, look, you know I've been banned. Like, <laughs> you know my history. And they said, yeah, we know your history. And they said, we need people like you to show the other guys that there's the opportunity to change. And actually, his story had in it that redemptive edge. And then people, other hooligans could say, well, Dave was like that. And now he's our chaplain. That almost gives people the permission 
who are in a bit of a pickle themselves to say, well, if he can do it, you know, he becomes a role model. Often with these sort of stories, you don't need to sort of explain to people, here's your route out of hooliganism. You can just say, well, look, here's Dave's story. And you think, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And for a lot of young lads in prison, in the football, he's now a Navy chaplain. A lot of sort of tough guys. They, I think often in tough guys, there's a tenderness underneath that people, the sort of macho people put on a front. You know, yeah, <laughs> but sure. deep inside, there's a tender spirit that's asking the same questions as everyone else. You know, is there a God? What's my purpose? How am I going to die? And Dave is exactly the right person for those sort of tough guys because he's a tough guy himself. But he's also happy to ask the questions, to pray the prayers. And he has a peace that I think people crave. And so they lean on Dave. He's, had, he's led all sorts of people to faith. He's prayed for all sorts of people. Often the toughest people who are put on a front in a quiet moment, they come to Dave and say, can we pray? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and he's there for them. You're, you're very much like a, an investigative journalist, yeah. Dan, aren't you? And you, you kind of like looked into the details um, of the Chilean miners. You looked into the details of doing that walk across the desert. Yeah. You looked into detail about Dave's story. Um, so as you consider those three powerful stories yeah. that you talk in detail in your book, Finding the Peacemakers, um, what's it done to you? The thing is, I, you're absolutely right. I love searching out stories and finding the details. I think for me, it's awakened in me this passion to find out um, the sort of, I don't want to say the answers to the sort of issues at the moment, because I think the answers are in the stories. It's wanted me to, it's inspired me to find the sort of role models in this generation who can provide almost a way through. I think in this generation, it's, it's so noisy. There's so much opinion, so many issues, so much politics, so much conflict. You know, the amount of information we consume is almost overwhelming. And actually, I think this generation is just bewildered. You know, is that, who do you listen to? How does it work? And I love finding someone who, who, who can just show the way. They're not like preaching or practicing or ranting or shouting. They're just living their life in such a way that people think, oh, that's the way out. And they're not flustered. You know, I think people of peace in this generation are quite rare. And so for me, it's, one, it's, it's made me want to show this generation who are these people? Who are the peacemakers? Who are the people who are turning the other cheek? Who are the other people who, um, who really trust God when the, you know, when the rubber hits the road? Yeah. And, and there are peacemakers yeah. out there. And there are good stories De- that actually need to be told. And when you hear them, I think that's what gives people the inspiration to follow it. Often, I think a lot of people work by imitation. You see something, you think, I can do that. And so I wanted to create those stories that kind of in, almost invite people into the movement. Um, and the other thing I'd say about these people is they're all ordinary people. They're not superheroes. You know, Dave will be very honest about his backstory. You know, the Chilean miners were very honest about their fears in the mine. They're not superheroes. They're just people who have put their trust in God, who've taken a risk, who've depended on him day by day. And God has done things through their lives, you know, and he's empowered them day by day. And it's the same for all of us. You know, this journey wasn't written just like that. You know, I made all, you know, there was little moments where, is this right, God? I'm not sure. (laughs) And things might have kind of fallen apart at the last minute. There was definitely moments in the desert when I thought, why am I doing this? But actually, there's just day by day trusting God. Those days add up. And then over the course of your life, you can do all sorts of things. It's amazing. Dan, thank you for telling these stories uh, in your book, Finding the Peacemakers. You're you're a great storyteller. Uh, Look forward to volume two. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Oh, thank you, Jojo.
I really hope those uh, stories uh, that Dan has just told us, I, I hope they've given you a faith lift. I hope they've inspired you with a little bit more faith, hope uh, and love. Thank you very much for joining us on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.